Welcome to The Lucrative Society. I'm your host, Mindy Kniss. And I'm Sean Stevenson. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. And I am so excited to have on our program today our good friend, Brad Costanzo. Brad, we've known you pretty much equally. Uh, I mean, you got to know Mindy as well as you got to know me. And you have brought so much value to our lives. That's why we want to bring you to our audience here today and talk about what it is that has allowed you to grow your business as well as improve your life. So let's get on into this. Thanks for being on the program, Brad. Thanks for having me. Man, I was nervous there. I thought you were just going to say, I've known you guys both about the same time. Now pick a favorite. And I was like, oh, shoot, I don't want to. Well, we know. That would be easy. Come on. <laughs> you always go with the girl and the boy will forgive you later. I will tell our listening audience something fantastic about Brad is he is a brilliant magician. Mm. So one of the first things I learned about Brad was watching him do magic tricks. And I was like, whoa, this guy is awesome. <laughs> so, you, you remember that, Brad, the Italian restaurant? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots of fun. So it has been many, fondly. many years that we have known you. And over that course of time, I would say you have helped us tremendously just in your way of thinking about marketing and business and life at large. And you're a pretty philosophical guy. So I'm excited to jump into this whole concept about happiness and wealth and making money as an entrepreneur and how that translates for you. I wonder just to get our listeners kind of up to speed, can you talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey or what has happened to kind of get you to where you are today? Yeah. Well, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth and I started a lot of companies, none of them which failed and everything I touched turned to gold all the time and I've never had any issues or problems. Mm. You're such a fascinating guest. (laughs) I know. Uh, My entrepreneurial journey, it really, I think it stems from, um, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, my, my mom and dad were always in sales and whatnot. And I've got, it was sales is very an entrepreneurial type of a, of a job. But my dad always just kind of instilled in me early on, don't work to learn, work to learn so that someday you can figure it out and you can go do your own business. And he, instead of getting a job when I was 16, he had me mowing lawns and doing all that other stuff. So he was trying to instill that sense of entrepreneurism early on. And the uh, the other part of that is I was also very, like, I'm very ADD and I'm very fortunate, loving family, grew up very optimistic, uh, and I just like to try new things. And those two things, having a supportive family that kind of lets you do that and lets you kind of chase your ADD without trying to suppress it, I think has really helped. Um, but so as I got out of college, I got in, I got into sales jobs and I was a financial advisor, which is pure sales. And I started doing uh, a few other different types of jobs, but I always had these little side hustles going on as well. Sometimes it was because I was bored with the other stuff, but oftentimes I think it was just to satisfy my curiosity. And I like to get in and try it and think, well, what if it works, right? I'm not too fear-based in my life. I mean, I, I do, a lot of us are driven by fear, but, uh, my fear isn't so much, will it work out? It's, will I have to go you know, submit my resume to an employer to get a job and let somebody else tell me what I'm worth. That's my fear. So that drove me into um, 
the real big phase of entrepreneurism, which was in 2007, I was a financial analyst at Prudential Investments. And the, you know, we were right there at the precipice of the big recession. And the company laid me off at the same time that I read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And where a lot of people got really enamored with that book saying, hey, I can only work four hours a week or I can make a whole bunch of money. This was my out because at this point, remember, I was fearful of going out and submitting my resume and asking people to anoint me as worthy of a paycheck. And I was like, screw that. This is another potential path. I'm scared to death of this. So I'm going to figure this out, hell or high water. And I started an information product business and as a marketing laboratory just to figure it out, teaching magic tricks, right, of all things. And um, I grew that to a nice like six-figure business and I sold it a few years later. In the meantime, I started a lot of other digital online-based information products. I did software, I did um, services, uh, and I got into consulting, which is really where the uh, past, I'd say, six or seven years has been focused on is consulting with a series of startups, some failed, a couple little acquisitions of other businesses, which is one of the areas I'm looking much more so right now is both, you know, continuing to capitalize on the consulting that I can do, but also looking for assets that I can acquire and using my marketing knowledge to improve as opposed to starting something from scratch, because I know intimately how fraught with failure and frustration that can be. So maybe that's a, maybe that's a quick overview of my background there. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is, and you mentioned it, having multiple different things that have failed. And I think anybody in the entrepreneurial, in the entrepreneurial shoes has that same experience. My question for you is how do you know when it's time to give up or throwing the towel on a certain project versus just being like, nope, I, I need to change my mindset or I need to change the marketing or I need to change my offer or whatever. What's the, what's the point where you're like, I'm done? So for me, it's been a combination of, is there a clear, like, because at that time, right, like things are not going right. Like either, you know, sales are not coming in or you're having a bunch of issues. And I look to say, is there a clear path out of this? Number one, is there a clear easy or is, it, is there a clear, not necessarily easy, but is there a clear solution to this problem? And the second question really, well, I guess there's three questions. Is there a clear solution? Is it worth me solving it? Right. So it could be, yeah, go out and raise a million dollars and then do all this other stuff. I might be like, nah, the juice isn't worth the squeeze on this one. Uh, but then the second question comes down to opportunity cost. And, you know, assuming I don't want to assume that everybody knows really what opportunity cost is, but it really is that what is the cost? What is the cost of lost opportunities? What else could I be doing as opposed to this? And I'll give you a perfect example. One of the businesses that you guys are familiar with that my wife and I started up was a coffee business, right? As a private label, cool coffee business named Stiletto Coffee. And we were all excited about it. And it was going for about a year. We were making some money, but it wasn't profitable. And I was sitting down at lunch one day with a friend and mentor of mine that you guys know, Roland Frazier. And I was kind of venting some of the general frustrations I was having and going, man, how do I figure this out? Blah, blah, blah. And Roland just framed it in a way that made the opportunity cost amazingly clear. And he said, Brad, let me ask you a question. So right now, um, assume you didn't own this company, this coffee business, would you take them as a client? And I was like, well, um, 
it depends on how much would they pay. He goes, let's assume you're not making anything now. Let's assume they're paying you $5,000 a month. I said, well, what would they have a marketing budget to deploy my ideas? And he said, nope, you'd have to be creative. I was like, well, and he goes, oh, another thing. They want you to spend a 75% of your day working with them. They'll give you 50 to 75% equity in the company. Would you take them as a client? And immediately I said, not in a million years. <laughs> Roland sat back with his cherubic cheeks and smiled at me, kind of like, gotcha. And it just made so much sense. I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, I wouldn't take this as a client. I, I've got a lot of success with client work. And the, that sunk in really deeply. And I said, all right, I'm going to shut this down. You're absolutely right. Like, gave it a good go. I'm going to shut this down. And we all cheersed around the table. Hey, here's the failure. <laughs> here's another one. And uh, in a very empowering way. The very, very next day, uh, I got a call from a, a listener to my podcast who I'd met one time a couple of years ago. And he said, hey, it sounds like you're doing consulting. I need some help. And I got on the phone with him. And that day we booked a, uh, a five-figure VIP day to come down, do a, a strategic ideation session with me where we plan out what needs to happen, execution plans, et cetera. And then he went on to pay me uh, I still work with him two and a half years to this day. He's still one of my favorite clients, uh, if not my favorite client. And um, it all stemmed from it all stemmed from knowing when to quit. And it was funny, the universe kind of rewarded me in a very cool way the very, very next day. And I just remembered looking at the amount of money I made for one day of consulting with this client and thinking how many freaking coffee beans or bags of beans would I have to sell to put this same amount in my pocket? And it was going to be like, couple thousand bags after all costs and everything else of profit to do this, which is what I was really good at. That was, a, that was, that was my process for saying enough is enough. I'm, I'm quitting and knowing when to quit. And then, yeah, universe going, high five, good job. Here's your reward for making the right move. So I'm curious, what do you consider wealth and how does one create wealth with happiness? Great question. So, you know, wealth is obviously a moving target to different people. And I think if, you know, if you have nothing in the bank, if you're struggling paycheck to paycheck, $10,000 a month probably sounds wealthy, right? If you're, if you're making half a million dollars a year, having a couple million dollars in the bank, you know, five or $6 million probably sounds wealthy. In fact, you could say, you know, so, so I, I'm, I'm going around this. I'm giving you the way I think through this because there's not a cut and dry answer for me. Because I could say, get, put four or $5 million cash in my bank. I will actually consider myself wealthy because I know how to utilize that with very safe investments in order to just pay myself uh, pa purely passive income and just do nothing but come to your house and play video games all day. Right. That's, that would be my choice. That being said, does that allow, does that, is that like true wealth that allows me to then make a big impact on the world around me? Like that's self-sustaining wealth to me, which is probably my first goal is to have enough of the passive income and assets that I literally do not ever have to do anything I don't want to do. But the next stage, up, and I'm not there yet, but the next stage up really is I'd like more wealth so that I can make a bigger impact so I can invest in game changing technologies in people in charities and just actually, you know, and have a lot more fun with the wealth. My, my personal goal is to get to that self-sustaining uh, wealth where it really is the big FU account 
and then it's the F yeah account after that. First it's F you, then it's F yeah. Well, I love that you go through that stage because F you, in the bigger picture, you want to make the impact. So really, like, I don't think it's about F you. For you, I know you. <laughs> and you're a really nice, good human being, so. Well, and you know what I mean with the F you, like you've heard of the, having an F you account, which is nobody can tell me what to do. I, like, I am the master of my domain. <laughs> yeah, so, so which, which one comes first? Is it the mindset of that or is it the money? Yeah, and that's a great point because the, the truth is the way to build the most wealth is to try to make the biggest impact on others. So if you are working towards the impact, the FU account and the FU wealth will ideally show up as a side effect of doing the things to make the big impact. So Brad, uh, and that is where I try to try to work on that. But tactically, it also kind of falls along the lines of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You want basic safety and then shelter, et cetera, before you can be that self-actualized top of the pyramid. And a lot of times I think people are too focused on, hey, how do I just get to jump to the top of the pyramid right away? And it's hard to do. Going up the ladder in a, in the uh, more linear way can oftentimes help. Like, for instance, I tell people, make sure you got your monthly bills covered. Like, number one, don't try to go out there and hit home runs. If you're, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, go find a wagon you can hit your, you know, your wagon to to make enough to where you can slowly make it your way up there. In fact, an amazing book, that talks about this exact same thing is by Roger Hamilton and it's called the millionaire master plan. Have you guys read it? That Brad, that is my most recommended book. That's the yep. one that I tell everybody. I'm like, you must read this book. Yep. Four hour work week was the biggest paradigm shift I've had. And then that book it was the most almost tactically for, for thinking, not tactical, like marketing tactics, but the most, Oh my God, this is, this makes so much sense. This simplifies it. And it, and it makes you realize, stop trying to jump up multiple rungs on the ladder, just go up. There is a process to this. It's not overly complicated. You can make it happen if you do this. I mean, people can read the book. We won't talk too much over their heads, but yeah, I think, I think about that very logically. Like how do I build one block at a time? Totally. Yeah. Such an awesome book. And people listening to this podcast will have heard us talk about that a lot because I'm always like, it's so easy. It says, this is the level you're at. Here's the three things to get to that next level. So yep. I want to talk about the, the intersection of wealth and happiness. These are the, yep. the two big concepts that we're talking about on this podcast and, you know, and really in, in our lives and with our friends. So it's a, it's a normal part of our conversations. Yep. So for you, one of the things that I want to talk about with happiness is what does happiness feel like to you? And like, how do you know when you're in it? Cool. So I, yeah, I love this question and it's loaded with nuances and distinction, right? Like the, just the word happiness has, um, I think been bastardized a lot as far as I'm concerned, where a lot of people think happiness is just a a constant feeling of contentment or excitement or joy, you know, joy or whatever. And it's really, I don't really see it like that. In fact, I remember walking on the beach in Costa Rica one day. Actually, uh, it was at uh, Awesomeness Fest. Fest with us. <laughs> and I was out there by the, it was one of the last days. And I was just kind of walking and thinking and I do my best thinking on the beach walks, etc. And one of my biggest problems was this. 
I was comfortable. I still am. I'm comfortable. Right? I don't consider myself wealthy. I, I make good money. I've got an, a nest egg, et cetera. Things are good. I get very comfortable. And I've got all the things, all the trappings that you would typically want, especially what I think the majority of people want. You know, I have a great wife and I got uh, you know, income and all this other stuff, but I, wasn't, I didn't consider myself happy. And I had this, this feeling, uh, like I think we all do, of like, hey, why? I've got all this stuff to be grateful for, but why am I not happy? And the, the, the word came into my life, or the two words that popped into my little brain were uncomfortable happiness. Which and then I started to really define like what what does that mean? What is uncomfortable happiness? And I think it's it's the fact that the times when I've been ha- and this is personal, so it's not a general rule for everybody. But the times when I've been happiest have been when I'm fully engaged, uh, um, moving towards an ambitious goal that I consider worthwhile, significant, and somewhat challenging, and challenging it enough in a way that it, it doesn't feel like this hopeless. Uh, this hopeless goal, but it actually feels like, all right, I can get this. I don't know how I'm going to figure it out, but I'm going to freaking figure it out. And um, it's and it is devoid of comfort, right? There, it's, there's nothing comfortable about that. But it was in that unco- that that aspect of discomfort that I was that I found myself the happiest was if things are going too well, if I'm not challenged, I'm not really happy, and I didn't know exactly why. And I started to think, well, you know, what I'd rather be you know, significantly successful or successfully significant. And I am driven by significance in a very large way. Like I, I like to feel that I'm added, adding value to somebody else's life. It makes me feel good selfishly. It makes me feel like, hey, I've got a place on this earth that matters. And whether I'm being significant just to my wife or to my friends or to my clients or to my business partners, um, then I redefine, well, what does it take to be significant? And so I stopped chasing happiness because, you know, what's the old saying? You know, happiness is the way. Be happy. Just be, it, it, it is very easy to be happy. And it starts with gratitude, et cetera. But happiness is not always equal to me, contentment, significance, and fulfillment. So I seek out those a little bit more so. How can I feel significant? How can I feel this way? Um, and I do that by just waking up and just, adopting a happy mindset, which I also believe is, you know, your, your perspective on the, the negative things that are going on in your life or the life around you. If you can take the right perspective of that, it allows you to maintain that happiness and not get it dependent upon some external result. Yeah. So, I like what you're saying a lot. It reminds me of that book by Chris Gullibo. You know, a lot of the people talk about the pursuit of happiness, but he swapped it and said, the happiness of pursuit. Yeah, I've heard, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, I've had the hardest time. Like I've got, I've got all, quite literally, I've got all of the material and this is not bragging at all, right? This is just authentic. I've got all of the material things that I, that I want right now. And I've had, you know, exotic car. That was cool. Sold it. It was more of a pain in the butt. I like telling the story of it, of it more than I liked driving it. Um, I've got a house that I rent on the beach and it's like dream house. It's cool. Would I want a better one? Sure. I'd want it, but it's not a driver, right? It's like, if I, I am just in this amazingly contently happy place, I do not have everything I want. I don't have everything that I think would be fun, but I'm in a very comfortable place. And that comfortable place is dangerous to me because it does, it can make me very complacent. And I remember when I moved into this house, like six months ago, I was like, 
if I had one thing on my dream board, if I, I never created one, but if I did, it would have been like a beach house. That's really all I cared about. Start and end my day on the beach. Now I've got that. I've got income coming in. I got a wife and friends and everything else. It was a big moment of like, oh damn, now what? Like, you know, it's not the pinnacle of what I could create, uh, could create, but it's the pinnacle of my comfort level. And it is very, very hard, especially the older you, I get, to pull myself out of that comfort zone uh, intentionally, right? Because you don't have to. And um, but then I go back to that. Well, when am I the most content and happy? And it is the happiness of pursuit. I'm doing it now because I view it as a game more than anything else. And that allows me to play, have fun with it, and be much more fully engaged. I remember interviewing a very wealthy man years ago. And I said, what do you want? And he said, to just maintain what I have. Yeah. Because he was happy. He had created the life that he wanted. And... You know, my challenge to you would be, you do have everything you want right now, and there's also nothing wrong with enjoying just that and not needing more, you know, yeah. not, not craving more. But I'm curious because I want to reverse engineer the things that you have in your life, the, the home mm-hmm. on the beach, the income that's come in, your nest egg, uh, your amazing relationship with your wife, your friends, all of these things. I believe there are certain things that you have done that you have put into place to get those things. And we've broken them into four components. And I want to just know what yours are. So number one are your habits. It's based on an acronym called HERB. And habits is the first one. So what are some of the things that you do consistently that you feel have attributed to your wealth and your happiness? You know, this is probably the one of the habits and doing anything on routine is probably my per- biggest personal <laughs> weakness. Um, I do I'm go walking on the beach, Brad. You walk on the beach all the time. That is true. I do take walks every day. I mean, I'm forced to do that because I have a dog, but I would do that anyway. Uh, working out, staying exercised, hydrated, um, making my bed. But that's more of habit of like, I like, I like my... I don't want my wife to threaten my life. So would Kenya it. actually threaten your life if you didn't make yes. you bad? Yes. <laughs> yes. I have seen. <laughs> He's an OCD warrior. The, the <laughs> only thing awesome. my wife and I ever, ever, ever fight about is that she saw a speck of dust on the counter and I didn't oh. see it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so maybe have it your strong too. Okay. Yeah. Habits aren't, but I, I think uh, journaling, I reading, uh, I guess I do have these habits. So I do read almost every day. I make sure that, you know, I'm drinking my coffee, I open up my iPad and I read at least, uh, I try to read it at least for about 10 to 30 minutes of something just to kind of get my mind right. So I, I don't have a strict um, morning ritual, but it's loosely based, but I do have one. Like I'm, I'm not checking my email right away and I'm trying to get myself in the right headspace. And uh, I do, I do a gratitude, I guess, habit every day. I do try to think about, I'm in the shower. I try to think about all the things that are going right, all the things that I'm happy for. Um, and just setting my mindset right. But besides that, just making sure I'm staying healthy, keeping the right attitude and um, whatnot. I, I used to meditate more often. I need to get back into that. I just, I kind of got out of that habit, but that's, some, that's a few of the things. So going from the H to the E, environment what are the things that you make sure you have in your environment meaning 
your home, your car, your office, uh, the, the things that you keep in and the things that you take out to make sure you have the right environment. Yeah. So, I mean, well, number one, I made sure that I moved to the environment where I feel the most inspired, which is the beach. And that is the foundation. I make sure that my home office is a place that I like. It's not too cluttered, but it's got everything I like and I want and uh, I feel good about. I make sure like over here, you can't see it, but there's a, um, there's this beautiful like recliner chair I bought. That's kind of my thinking chair and my reading and thinking chair. And it kind of faces the ocean. Um, and I made sure I put that in there just because I was like, I want that in my, that will set my head straight, right. That'll allow me to, um, have that. I, I try to keep, I'm not a minimalist, but kind of, I try to keep clutter free. I don't buy it unless it, you know, it's kind of necessary or it's a big whimsical buy because I know when I have a lot of things cluttered in my environment and too much stuff, I kind of feel stifled. I think that I, as far as the environment goes, I think that's primarily it. Um, luck, I, I'm lucky that as I said, uh, the energetic environment is really good. My, my wife and I have a great relationship. We, we function very, very well. So I've got that going for me. And, um, but I'm, I'm very cognizant of that because I do believe environment is one of the single most important things. It, there's a great book by a writer I love, and I cannot think of his damn name, but he's got a great Benjamin Hardy. He's got a book. Do you guys know Benjamin? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. But his book, Willpower Doesn't Work, is a great book. It really says, look, everything starts really with your environment because it influences everything to such a high degree. Get that crap right first and set the stage for success and everything else will flow a little bit easier. So from the E to the R, this will be your favorite one because I know the kind of man that you are. R stands for resources and those can be books that have shaped your, your soul and your mindset, uh, courses, um, programs that you've gone through. What are some of the resources that you feel have developed your wealth and happiness that you would strongly recommend to others? So I would have to say, well, first of all, tell, just so I don't accidentally answer what the next one might be, give me a little hint on what the B is. <laughs> Beliefs. Beliefs, cool. So resources, and this I can go deep. We could talk for hours on this, but um, yes, I am an avid reader. I have mad curiosity, so I'm reading constantly. So books are my uh, books are my jam. Uh, but more than anything, that it's it's my relationships have been the best resources I've got. It's one of the reasons I started a business related podcast was so that I could have more of a reason to talk to the people I want to talk to about the things I want to talk about and deepen the relationship with them and give them a platform to share freely where I'm not picking their brain one-sided value exchange. And uh, I definitely use that as a foundational resource for uh, if I want to know something, somebody else has that information. And in fact, when it comes to resources, this is one of the things that I did I went back to some clients and I said, what, why do you pay me? Like, what is the value? What is the real value you get from working with me? Because I do a little bit different stuff for different clients. It's not a one size fits all productized service. And the common thread was, it's the way you think. It's the way you approach problems. It's the way you come up with innovative solutions. And I, I like having you around because when I have you around, smart things happen. And that was great. The problem was I, if, if, some of my biggest value is the way I think 
and like the resources I bring to the table, I was like, how do I think? I've never codified that. So I sat down and I, and I started to list in a journal back in December, what, how do I think? Like, what are some of the principles? Uh, which I was inspired by Ray Dalio's book, Principles. What are some of the principles I work, uh, I, I live by? What are some of my just subconscious algorithms? When this happens, I do that. What are some of the rules of thumb? What are the different lenses I use? And what are some of the uh, just thinking tools and mental models? And I started to list out like 80 of them. I blew myself away, just one liners. And these are all things that I've got. These are things I think of. They're in the front or back of my mind. I've got experience with them. And they all have a very specific function is that they unlock doors. Sometimes they unlock a door that's in your way. Sometimes it unlocks a door that's a new opportunity. And I affectionately call these my cognitive keys. And I think of as a janitor who's walking through a, like a building or a school building, and he's got a big ring of keys, like with 50 rings, keys on there. He walks up to a door, he flips through. He's like, okay, let's try this. Nope. Oh, it's this key that unlocks the door. And I started to build out this. I took this list and every day in a journal, I started to list out, here's what this key is. Here's the problem or the door it unlocks. Here is how it works. Here's a, here's a story or example of me specifically using, using it because these keys are fashioned by experience. It's not just a success platitude that you see like people sharing in social media. And then if I was to teach this, somebody else how to use this key, what would I do? What would I tell them? And the very first one that I wrote down goes back to the first part of the situation. The very first thing I always remember at the front of my mind I don't need to know everything if I can access the people who do, because that solves so many problems. And on the surface level, that's very easy to understand. But I wrote like a thousand or 2000 words about this, like really breaking it down and even understanding the nuance between, I didn't say, I don't need to know everything if I know the people who do. I said, if I can access the people who do, like, well, what does that mean? What is accessing? I mean, I might just mean reading their book your book, Sean, and I'm accessing your knowledge. But it might mean inviting you to my podcast, which I did, and accessing you that way. But it also might mean paying you thousands of dollars in uh, coaching fees to help you improve my speaking, which I also did, literally like six years ago, almost to the day. And I accessed your knowledge. Now, I can also access it by just hiring you to do something for me, right? So I, I started to really blow this out. And now this cognitive keychain that I've been developing and am currently developing this into a future book um, and maybe even a podcast on this it has become one of my most valuable resources because I've got it printed out. It's always front and center. And it allows me when I get stuck to go to this and just kind of flip, go down through the, the, the keys and go, which one of these might unlock this door or allow me to view it like a lateral lens and view that from a different way, like maybe I can just walk around the door. Maybe it's, maybe it's like one of these door jams in the middle of a field that I don't need to unlock it. And that has been like tapping into my experiential wisdom and the wisdom of others and my collected, you know, advice from mentors and books and resources. Uh, and this is new. This is over the past six months. This has been the single most valuable resource I've got now in my life. Switching into the B for beliefs and yeah. You, you kind of touched on it maybe a little bit in your cognitive keys, but what are some of the beliefs that you are grateful that you've adopted from your mentors? Cool. So I believe 
that if it's not against the laws of physics, that the only thing stopping me from doing it is the right knowledge or access to the right knowledge. And uh, that's a very empowering belief. And I hold that. This is good. I, I actually haven't sat down to really pull out my beliefs on this. Um, I believe that for me, at least, that I have the ability to meet almost anybody I want, given the right circumstance and reason why. That's a very empowering belief. It's, it's one of my little superpowers is my ability to connect and network, although I don't put myself out there. I don't call myself a connector um, because I see it as a byproduct of what happens, not the, that's not like my ulterior motive is just to connect with as many people as possible. But I, I have this empowering belief that if, if I wanna meet somebody, it's a, it's a given I'm gonna make it happen. And that has helped me open a lot of doors. I believe that, you know, this actually goes back to my NLP training and back to some of those presuppositions. I do believe that people are making the best choices based upon the resources they have. And I believe that people are doing the best with what they've got you know, in spite of all of the fears and failures and frustrations that they've got. And that allows me to develop more empathy for people. Um, and I think my empathy has helped me become a better copywriter and marketer in general. Um, but I mean, I think those are some of my core beliefs without really having thought through them deeply. I want to wrap up with this. We always love sharing our friends and our community with our listeners. So if our folks want to learn more about what you're up to, what's the yeah. best place to have them visit? So I'll give, them a, I'll give them two resources. So one is if they like the smooth, sultry sounds of my voice and they want to hear it up in their earballs more often, they can subscribe to my podcast, um, baconwrappedbusiness.com, sizzling hot business advice guaranteed to make you fat profits and that's on itunes and android and all the other stuff that's awesome and we'll link to all of that in the show notes on our site so that is great brad we just are super grateful for you for who you are to us and for sharing your time and wisdom with our listeners so thank you for being here pleasure thanks for having me absolutely thanks so much for listening make sure and subscribe to the lucrative society on itunes and leave a review of the podcast for more information on our programs, visit our website at lucra.com. That's L-U-C-R-A dot com.